Thank you, Samuel, for that beautiful song. I, I really love that song, and, and uh, it's, uh, you did a great job with it. And it fits very well into what we are going to be talking about this morning in Romans chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, as the song says, I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it, and still you give yourself away. And, and that's very much what we're working from today as we look at uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And just to remind you of where we've been in the study of Romans so far, uh, we have looked at the first two chapters of Romans in which Paul is, uh, has set up the fact that we as humans are condemned, that we, regardless of whether we are uh, a moral person who seeks to live by some moral code or whether we're uh, a darkened pagan who uh, is darkened in mind and in heart and who seeks to live by his own appetite, whatever the situation is, we are in sin. And we have been, uh, as Paul says, we are under sin and we stand uh, condemned and are under the wrath of God as a result of that sin. And then in chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 21, Paul began to crack the door just a little bit to a ray of hope that he introduced, which is the idea that there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. That if we are to judge our lives by the law of God, if we were to set up a, a scale and to place the law of God on one end and, the, and our works on the other, we would come up wanting. We would come up desperately in need of some other work to, to reconcile us to God. But God deals with us not according to our works, but according to something else. To, he deals with us according to a righteousness that comes apart from the law. A righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, Paul gives two Old Testament examples of men who were justified before God, not based on the works that they had done, but based on the righteousness that comes through faith. And so to see that, let's read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 together. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1, God's Word says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not, 
it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, as to make, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would bless us. Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand it. Lord, that you would work through your spirit to change us by your word, to form us into the people that you would have us to be. Lord, I pray that you would give me the strength and and wisdom to preach this as you would have me to, and that these, your people, would be built up and leave this place ready to serve you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So from this passage, I want you to see two points this morning. First, I want you to see the father of faith. And second, I want you to see the footsteps of faith. So first, let's consider the father of faith from verses 1 through 8. So Paul knows that any well-studied Jew will object to the point that he's just made at the end of chapter 3. He knows that the, the Jew is going to object to the idea that someone can be justified before God apart from obedience to the law. In fact, really, it doesn't even take a Jew to object to this. I know of a lot of people who have rejected the gospel because the gospel insinuates that their works don't matter. I've had a person, I know of a person who has told people that came to witness to them that he didn't accept Jesus because he believed that his works would get him into heaven. And so there are a lot of people, even today, you don't have to be a Jew to object to the idea that you uh, cannot be saved by your works. And so the Jews would have, would have thrown up all sorts of red flags at Paul saying, there's no way that this could be the case. The Bible very clearly says in the Old Testament that the Jews were to be obedient to the law. And so how is it that you, Paul, can say that there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law? So Paul turns to the example of two Old Testament heroes that any Jew would have admired and believed were justified by their works. He turns to the example first of Abraham. And he asks, in effect, what are we to do with our forefather Abraham? Now for the Jew, there was no greater hero, no greater righteous man than that of Abraham. In Paul's day, Abraham had become kind of this mystic figure. He had, the, the Jews viewed him to be righteous because they said that there had to have been some unforeseen or unseen work that Abraham had done that Genesis doesn't record at all that made God accept him and bless him. They believed that there was something that Abraham did in his past or something that he did that we don't have recorded that made him acceptable before God. But Abraham is actually the perfect example of the point that Paul wants to make. Remember, 
remember Abraham's story. First of all, Abraham had nothing, had nothing that he could offer God to help in the purposes that God had for Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him out of Ur to go to the land of Canaan. And his wife was barren. Abraham didn't have a child and he didn't have the ability to have a child when God called him and said that he was going to bless him and make him into a great nation. Second, Abraham proved time and again to be a cowardly, faithless man. Two different times, he tried to give his, his wife away to a king to save his own neck. Now, ladies, I, I know that uh, you have a lot of expectations for your husband and you expect him to love you and to cherish you and to support you and to do all these things. And could you imagine two different times your husband telling you, look, I'm going to give you away to this king. You say you're my sister so that I won't die. You know, I don't know that you would stay with the guy after two different betrayals like that. I mean, he was glad to give you away for the sake of his own neck. And, and, and Sarah remained with him. But then Sarah gets the idea in order to fulfill God's promises in a sinful way, she, or by her own means, Sarah gets the idea to, to give her slave girl to Abraham that he might have a child by her and somehow fulfill God's purpose through another means. And Abraham, again, gladly accepts the idea of this sin so that he can have uh, uh, fulfill God's promise by sinful means. If we were to judge Abraham's life by the rule of the law, we would have to say, like hands down, no competition, not even a hard case, we would have to say that he was unrighteous. Yet Paul points out that God called him righteous for one peculiar reason. In Genesis chapter 15, which is the, the chapter that Paul quotes in, this, in these verses that we just read, God appears to Abraham and he reminds him of the promise that he made back in Genesis chapter 12. But Abraham asked, well, how are these things going to be? I'm old. My wife is barren. How is it that you're going to make me the father of a great nation? And God says, I want you to look up at the sky and see if you can number the stars. Because that is the number that your descendants will be. And then it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, this verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, it says, He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now Paul latches on to that statement to show that Abraham was considered righteous not through his works, because Lord knows he wouldn't have been considered righteous that way, but he was considered righteous through faith. Now the word counted there is, the, is an accounting term. It's a term that's used to, to, to balance the book, so to speak. And the idea is to number or to reckon or to impute. So as an analogy, consider the process that any foreign person would go through to become a U.S. citizen. 
You know, they go through a little civics lessons, through some civics classes, and then they stand up in front of a federal official, they raise their right hand, and they say a pledge to the United States of America. And at that pledge, they are declared a U.S. citizen. Not because of any works they have done, because you, there's no way to tell whether they will go out and, and do good works for the, for the uh, government or do good works for the citizens of the United States of America. There's no way to tell whether they will be faithful in their, in their citizenship. But at that moment, on the pledge of their word, they are declared to be a U.S. citizen with all the rights and benefits of it, regardless of who they are or what they do with it. And in a similar way, God, through Abraham's faith in uh, his promises, God declares him to be righteous by his belief in what God has promised. So then, in verse 4, Paul contrasts this idea of imputed righteousness with works righteousness with another analogy. He says, you know, when someone goes out to work, so imagine you're a day laborer, you're an hourly laborer, you go out to work and at the end of the day, when you're done with your work, you hold your hand out and you expect what? You expect pay, right? Because if you work an eight hour day and you agreed to work for 10 hours, then you should receive $80 minus all the taxes that the government's going to take out. But you should receive, you can expect $80. But if you don't work eight hours, if you work seven hours and 30 minutes, should you expect $80? Now, this is something that as an employer, you know, I, I work... Uh, uh, on another job uh, the rest of the week. And, and as an employer, I can say for some employees, this is a difficult concept to understand. But if you come in consistently 30 minutes late to work every day, guess what any reasonable employer is going to do? He's going to dock your pay. Because to pay an employee 30 minutes for work he did not do is not his due reward. It's a gift. And in the same way, by comparison, if you think that you're going to set out to work your way to heaven, if you think you're going to earn your salvation by the work that you do, you better obey every dot and tittle of the law. To fail in one aspect, no matter how insignificant, no matter how small the command, and then expect to be considered righteous by God, is to expect a gift, not your just reward. It is a serious error of people in our culture to think that they can be good enough for God. That they can somehow outweigh, which is a popular idea in our culture, to outweigh the bad that they do with the good that they do. That somehow the bad is canceled out by the good. Guess what? 
If you kill someone and then you go help an old lady across the street, the person you kill is still dead. And the work that you did in that bad thing is still there. You can't cancel out the bad that you do with the good that you do. It's like that employee that shows up an hour late to work uh, every day and then expects to be paid the full day's wage. It's a foolish thing to expect. But on the other hand, to recognize that you can't be good enough for God and instead trust in the good grace of God to forgive you and save you is to receive God's righteousness as a gift. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story of two sons who one son comes to his father and says, I want all my inheritance right now. Father gives him his inheritance. He goes out into a foreign land and he blows it all. He's eating food out of a pigsty when he decides, the Bible says he comes to himself and he realizes the servants in my father's house have it better than I do. So he goes back to his father and while he is still, the Bible says, while he is still a long way off, his father comes running. His father receives him back, kills the fatted calf, throws a big party. And all the while, his older brother sitting over there just a steaming. And he, his father comes to his older brother and says, why are you upset? And he says, well, I have done all this stuff for you. I have worked my whole life to be acceptable before you. And you accept that little rascal back without any question and you kill the fatted calf? And you won't even give me a goat for a party with my friends? And the father says, you can go look it up in Luke chapter 15. It's a beautiful statement. You were always my son. In other words, the older son thought that he had to work to earn his, God's, uh, earn his father's favor. And the whole time, he was the son of his father. He had viewed his whole life as that of a servant, as that of a slave, when in reality, he was a son. If you think that you can work to earn your God's favor, then you better do it to the fullest extent of the law. But if you recognize that your God is a loving Father who gives good gifts to those who depend on Him, then you have His righteousness as a free gift by grace. So next, let's consider the footsteps of faith in verses 9 through 12. So the good news that Paul is announcing here is the fact that that this righteousness that is received through faith isn't just something that Abraham and David benefited from. It's not even something that just Israelites benefit from. No, the good news is that everyone who trusts in the promises of God receives righteousness through faith. 
Now, that's good news for us because I think most of us in this room are Gentiles. We're not Jews. And so we don't fall under the covenant of Abraham. We don't fall under the nation of Israel. And so we might say, well, that's all fine and well and good for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and for David and for all of those Jews. But what about for me? What do I do to be saved? But Paul points out in verses 9 through 11 that the events of Genesis 15, when God counted the, right, the faith of Abraham to be righteousness, where Abraham believed God and received righteousness, those things occurred before he received the sign of circumcision. Now to us, that doesn't really matter, but to the Jew, this is a big deal. You see, the Jews prided themselves in the fact that God had given them the sign of circumcision. And they thought, literally, that they were better than other nations and other peoples because they had this sign from God. They also assumed that one of the reasons that Abraham was considered righteous was because he faithfully instituted the uh, sign of circumcision. But Paul points out that God counted Abraham as righteous before he received the sign of circumcision. In fact, it was around 15 years after the events of Genesis 15 that God would command Abraham to carry out the sign of circumcision. So in verse 12, Paul says that Abraham is not only the father of the nation of Israel, he is the father of everyone who trusts in the promises of God. You see, in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham to leave his father and mother and go westward to a land that he would give him, God was beginning something new. From the fall of Adam in Genesis chapter 3 right up to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, humanity proved that there was no hope of salvation apart from God's intervention. The first son of Adam and Eve, Cain, was in, in, uh, uh, was invested with such hope. Eve proclaimed, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And they hoped that maybe he would be the one who would crush the curse of sin. And yet Cain proved that sin ruled by crushing his brother. After God's judgment in the flood, there was a great hope that Noah would be the one righteous man through whom we might see a righteous humanity. But then we find in the very next story, Noah is drunk and naked and his son, Ham, comes and mocks him and receives a curse. There might have been great hope for humanity with the great city of Babel as all of humanity was gathered together into one place. And man, what could we do with all of that brain power? And you know what they did with all of that brain power? They tried to build a tower to heaven that they might rule over God. Time and again, humanity has proven that we cannot escape the curse of sin through our own good works. If we're going to be saved, God must do it. So in Genesis chapter 12, immediately following the story of the Tower of Babel, God stoops down and He calls Abraham. He doesn't call him because he was great. He doesn't even have a son at this point. He doesn't call him because he was good or righteous. 
He calls him because God is going to do something new through him. Through Abraham, he is going to teach people to trust the Lord. Through Abraham, he is going to make a nation that will be totally dependent on the Lord for their success. Through this nation, he is going to show the world that a sacrifice is needed to forgive sins. And through one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus of Nazareth, he is going to provide that sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friend, if you are seeking to gain God's favor through good works, know that you are working for a wage that you cannot earn. One wrong move, one bad thought, one careless word, and you have proven yourself unworthy of that wage. But there is another way. Receive the gift of God's grace through the sacrifice that Jesus gave for your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ today and be saved. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham through faith. This means that the blessings of Abraham extend to you. So just as God promised an inheritance to Abraham, so too He promises the inheritance of heaven to you. God has made you a part of that great throng of people who are the true children of Abraham, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promise of Abraham, the promise that those who rest in Your grace who rest in the hope that you will bring about a right end, who rest in the fact that you have given the sacrifice that is needed for reconciliation and redemption, those will be saved. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you as their Savior, that they would turn to you in this hour and trust in what you have done. Lord, if we, as we leave this place, may we go as those who live by faith, those who do not seek to earn a wage by our works, but who do works of gratitude for the grace that you have shown us through Christ. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.